before you open up God's word this morning. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you were willing to send Jesus to this world to become sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We pray, Lord, that that same spirit that you sent to prepare the way for Jesus in his first coming will inhabit us just as it did John the Baptist in giving his message. And that that message for today will be given through us in our lives to the people before you come. In Jesus' name, amen. What did you expect? We may see this when people respond to situations and circumstances in life in a way that is incorrect or unrealistic, or when the weight of evidence seems to be pointing in one direction, and yet people make conclusions that ignore or contradict, contradict the evidence and facts. And then there are times in life when things just don't turn out like we would expect them to. Take, for example, the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Does anybody remember way back in March of 2020? It's only two years ago, and yet it may seem like a lifetime. At that time, there were experts who were predicting that COVID-19 pandemic may well be over by April of that year or at the latest that summer. And I must admit, I was in fact one of those people who was hoping and praying that they were right and that life would just return to normal by April. I was looking forward to Walmart with no toilet paper shortages. Though you may remember that, although those of us in Saipan didn't really experience that. We had other shortages in Saipan that we experienced on a pretty regular basis, but toilet paper wasn't one of them. And so we actually had a little joke going that maybe we would get together and pool our resources and send toilet paper to you guys in the mainland who were struggling. But I was looking forward to not having to social distance, not having to wear masks, being able to return to work and social activities without restrictions or complications. And remember, when was this? March of 2020. We hadn't even begun. In short, I expected everything to be good again, everything to return to normal and be good. And while my belief that COVID-19 would be over and done with just in a few short months without major long-term impact or complications, to say the least, I was a little over-optimistic, maybe naive. It didn't, but to be honest, it really didn't affect my life in a negative way because the truth is that there was little I could do about it one way or the other. But there are times in life, and particularly in the lives of God's people, when our selfish or misdirected expectations can have grave consequences. Unfortunately, this was the case for God's people at the first coming of Jesus. Except for a handful of people in Israel, and I'm counting the wise men who traveled a long way to Israel in that number, the rest of the world was totally unprepared for Christ's first advent when he arrived as a newborn baby. And why were they unprepared? 
Well, in a large part, it was because that those entrusted with God's word had misconstrued or misinterpreted God's messages concerning the coming Messiah. They had drifted so far from God's intent for them that instead of being heralds of the coming king, they either neglected the prophecies or misdirected God's people to expect a worldly king that would conquer Israel's enemy, exalt her over all the nations of the earth, and bring in the kingdom of God according to their expectations. They led people to believe that the Messiah would come in a blaze of glory and establish his kingdom here on earth. So when Jesus did come as an infant, born in a feeding trough to a poor couple from Nazareth, he, they, he was not what they were expecting. Yes, there were wise men, the shepherds, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, and Anna, who celebrated the birth of the Messiah and recognized him as sent from God. But it was a pitiful reception for the creator and king of the universe from a world that should have universally, universally lauded, praised, and worshipped him. Not to mention for the savior of the world to receive from those whose very lives and existence depended upon him for their continued survival in this life and the life to come. Fortunately for us, though, God did not give up on us. Even after we snubbed him and ignored the delivery of the most precious gift ever given in the history of mankind. Not only did God not give up, but he poured out himself more and more into preparing the world for this reception of the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. And you ask, how did he do this? Let's read John 1, 6 through 9 and see if we can see what God did for us. John 1, 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man in the world. So you see some key components of what God did in pouring out his spirit into John was to be a witness so that all may believe and see what? See the light. God's method of preparing the world for Jesus and his message to the world was to, sing, was to send a single, solitary individual filled with his spirit, John the Baptist. This is a prime of example of the saying, when it's you and God together against the whole world, you are in the majority. You can count on that. And it could be you, a student in school. Maybe there's an, a situation where there's another student being picked on. And actually, I actually talked to someone today who had that kind of experience. Someone was picking on them, 
And, and maybe it's you who has been called by God, filled with his spirit, to stand up for that other child and say, hey, this is not right. This is not the kind of thing to do. We should not be treating this child this way. Or maybe you're in the workplace and you're seeing something going on that just isn't right. It's kind of fishy. You can tell it's not ethical. Maybe it's immoral. Maybe it's they're doing something wrong to cheat the customers. And you know that God is calling you to stand up. It's at that time that you may feel like you are the only one in the world being called to give this message. But remember, no matter what, when it's you and God, you are in the majority. So, in this relationship between God and John, we see that God, John was just one man, but he was one man with all the love, power, wisdom, and heaven at his disposal to accomplish the mission that he had been given. And it's the same way for us today. If God gives you a mission, which he gives every one of us as his followers, he will give you all that you need to fulfill that mission. And what was that mission? What was John's singular purpose in life? It was to prepare men and women to receive the light of the world, Jesus Christ. When asked by the teachers of the law who he was, and we can find this in John 1, 20 through 23, if you can turn there now, John 1, 20 to 23, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? He said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. From the very outset, John acknowledged that he was not the Christ. Notice that even in his response to those who sought to discredit and disqualify him for the mission that God had given him, and you can almost count on it, that if you are given a mission by God, there will be those who try to disqualify you and discredit you in your mission. But John stays on message. He stays on point. We often hear this in politics. When a politician is trying to get people to vote for them, they are often reminded, stay on message, stay on point. And that is exactly what John does. He stays on message. And what is his message? Simply put, don't look at me, I'm not the Christ, but I have come to point you to the one who is the Christ. We can clearly see a pattern developing with the conflict between those who are looking for a worldly conquering king and calling into question John's authority and the legitimacy of his message and John's response in John 1, 24 through 27. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah nor Elijah the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
Notice again how John points to the attention away from himself and his ministry and toward Jesus and his ministry. He diminishes his own importance and exalts and extols the value and importance of the coming Messiah. In this way, John sets the tone for his entire ministry and, in fact, for his own life. Again, in John 1.15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. Here, John not only establishes the preeminence of Christ, but also his preexistence. In some sense, it is an echo of the words of Jesus himself in John 8, 58, when Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John's, message was, John's mission was to lift up Jesus and his character and to prepare the way for his mission, and it is further revealed in John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John's reference to Jesus as the Lamb of God hearkens to the sacrificial lamb of the sanctuary service, whose blood was poured out as an atonement for the sin of Israel. And here again, John blows away what people expect to see because they expected a Messiah for who? For the Jews, and exclusively for the Jews. John expands the vision and clarifies the true nature of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of not only God's chosen people, but of the whole world. John's life and mission were born of faith. He trusted that the Spirit of God would lead him in his mission. The same spirit who led him to live in the wilderness. That same spirit that led him to eat locusts and wild honey. That same spirit who led him to wear camel's hair. That same spirit that gave him the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. that same spirit would also reveal to him the Messiah, who by John's own admission, he did not know in the flesh. In other words, God had not told John, oh yeah, John, by the way, you know your cousin, you know that, that he's the Messiah. We read about it in John 1, 31 through 34. John 1, 31 through 34. I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see that God was filling John with his Holy Spirit so he could point to the Messiah who would fill us with the Holy Spirit. Why do I associate a life of faith 
with what John wore, what he ate, what he preached? Well, because they're not coincidental. John's life was dedicated to serving the Lord and preparing the way for the Messiah. So even the things that he ate and drank and wore mattered. They were of consequence. They were part and parcel of who he was as a follower of God with a special mission to point people toward the coming Messiah. Notice this reference to the life of John the Baptist in Adventist Home, page 132, paragraph 2. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, received his early training from his parents. The greater portion of his life was spent in the wilderness. It was John's choice to forego the enjoyments and luxuries of city life for the stern discipline of the wilderness. Here, his surroundings were favorable to the habits of simplicity and self-denial. Uninterrupted by the clamor of the world, he could here study the lessons of nature, of revelation, and of providence. From his childhood, his mission had been kept before him, and he accepted the holy trust. To him, the solitude of the desert was a welcome escape from the society in which suspicion, suspicion, unbelief, and impurity had become well nigh all-pervading. Does this sound at all familiar? He distrusted his own power to withstand temptation and shrank from constant contact with sin lest he should lose the sense of exceeding sinfulness. I feel so blessed that I am part of a church and a school that recognize the importance of connecting our young people with nature, detaching them from the illusion of this world to the reality of heaven and what God wants to do in their lives. We are so blessed to have a church and a school that want the very best for our children. And that very best requires them to point their life to Christ and his ways of living. Clearly, there was a connection between how John the Baptist lived his personal life, what he ate, what he drank, what he wore, how he spent his free time, and the effectiveness of his ministry and message. And this idea is supported by Jesus himself. If you look in Matthew chapter 11, 8 through 10. When John's followers left, Jesus began talking to the people about John. He said, what did you go out to the desert to see? Someone who is weak like the stem of grass blowing in the wind? Really, what did you expect to see? Someone dressed in fine clothes? Of course not. People who wear fine clothes are all in king's palaces. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, John is a prophet. But I tell you, he is more than that. The scripture was written about him. Listen, I will send my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare the way for you. So far, we have looked almost exclusively at the life of John the Baptist, and in particularly his ministry in preparing the world for the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. But there are many lessons that we can learn from his life and how they apply to us today. 
I would like to share three of them with you today as we conclude. So I want to share a few lessons that I have gleaned from the life of John the Baptist. Number one, and this is the keynote of John's life in just five words. He must increase, I must decrease. John, speaking of Christ, gave that keynote, and I think we would be wise to follow his example. John's life in all ways continually pointed to Jesus Christ. Number two, how we live our lives does matter. If we say that we are Adventist Christians living in the last days expecting Jesus Christ's soon return, it will make a difference in what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, and how we live. But I can't say it better than the greatest Christian that ever lived when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God has given us each a particular mission in his body to fulfill. And he's given the Adventist church a specific message to share. And he will, as I said, fill us with his spirit as we are open to receive it to fulfill that mission. Number three, when we follow Christ, he will have a message to give us, just as John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ's first coming. God has a special mission for us to give just before he returns and for us to share with the world. Part of that message will sound just like the message of Jesus and John the Baptist, who both said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You don't hear a ton about repentance nowadays, but I believe it's part of the message that God wants us to share. But there are, of course, other messages that he wants us to share. So I'll close with a couple quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy. One you'll see in your bulletin right here is from Temperance, page 91. And I, I won't read the whole quote, but I want to bring out a couple points. And one is, today we do hear, while we may not hear a ton about repentance, we do hear a, a lot about relationship. And I was so glad to see that God is at the head of relationships here because even in this final message that we are to give, we see the prophet Malachi saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Isn't that a beautiful message? With uh, an age of generation gap, and, and boomers and millennials and making fun of each of the other generations. He wants us to come together as um, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren. He wants to bind together the hearts of the fathers and the sons, the mothers and the daughters. I also want to point out, before we go to the last quote, this passage where it says, he was a representative of those uh, excuse me, he was a representative of those living in the last days to whom God has entrusted sacred truths to present before the people, to prepare the way for the second appearing of Christ. And the same principles of temperance which John practiced should be observed by those in our day who are to warn the world of the coming of the Son of Man. I want to close with this quote from... Desire of Ages, page 179, paragraph 5. Those who are true to their calling 
as the messengers for God will not seek honor for themselves. Love for self will be swallowed up in love for Christ. No rivalry will mar the precious cause of the gospel. They will be recognized that it is their work to, they will recognize that it is their work to proclaim as did John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. They will lift up Jesus and with him humanity will be lifted up. I can't think of a higher calling than to be chosen to lift up humanity. Can you? Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him, also that is of the contrite and humble spirit, to receive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. May God fill us with his spirit and may we be prepared to prepare the world for his second coming. Our closing hymn is number 286, Wonderful Words of Life. <laughs> 